first 3 through 16. I've uncovered verses 1 through 6, but we'll back up to verse 3 again. Go through verse 16. And I want to talk this morning about growing a healthy church. Last week I talked about God's plan for the church uh, from the book of Acts, the second chapter, about what's needed for a... uh, God's plan for the church, what God's intention for the church. It's a scriptural church. It's a sharing church. It's a fellowshipping church. It's a praying church. It's a joyful church. And it's a growing church. Uh, That was kind of the last point, that God's plan for the church is that it be a growing church. And today as we get to Ephesians 4 and we look at these verses, we'll see that I believe Paul uh, teaches us that uh, God wants the church to be healthy and God wants the church to grow. By way of introduction, I'm going to make just kind of a blanket statement. And I believe that we can all agree with this statement, but that statement simply this, all things that are healthy grow. All things that are healthy grow. That you take a plant, for example, that when it gets the proper nutrients it needs from the soil, it gets the right amount of sunlight, the right amount of water, it's going to grow. It's going to flourish. You take a child that when they get the proper nutrients from their food and from vitamins and from being taken care of, that child is going to grow. That if there's nothing wrong in their DNA, if there's nothing wrong on the inside of that child physically, that if they're taken care of and get the right nourishment, that child is going to grow and be physically healthy. But if the child doesn't get proper nourishment, if they don't get the right amount of vitamins and get the right amount of care, they're going to have all kinds of physical problems. They're going to have all kinds of health problems. They'll be malnourished. Now you take, for example, my youngest daughter, Isabella. Uh, I'm sure most of you know, but she has Down syndrome. Down syndrome is the result of an extra chromosome in your DNA. Now physically, we could say that she's healthy. She did have some physical issues earlier in age. There was one ear that she couldn't hear out of. She did have a hole in her heart that, that closed up. But a lot of kids with Down syndrome, they have a lot of physical issues. They have a lot of physical problems. But being Down syndrome, there are physical features that let you know she has Downs. She's relatively short, and she's probably not going to get much taller. She's 12 years of age, and there are kids that are 7, 8, 9, 10 that are starting to pass her as far as growth. But physically, she doesn't have uh, really any kind of health challenges. Her eyesight's pretty bad. If you were to look through her glasses, you could tell that she has some pretty bad eyesight. But physically, she's, she's pretty healthy. But intellectually, mentally, cognitively, developmentally, that's where she struggles. You see, even though she's 12 years of age, she functions more like a four-year-old. Five-year-old. She's not able to do what other 12-year-old children do. But here's the thing. It's a medical condition that doctors can't do anything about. And so although I can say that physically she's healthy, if I were to be really technical, I could say that she's not totally healthy. She has a condition. 
And again, it's a condition that I can't do anything about and the doctor can't do anything about. They can't rearrange her DNA. They can't take that extra chromosome about, out of her DNA. God would have to intervene and work a miracle. Now let me just say, if you're wondering, preacher, have you ever prayed for your daughter to have a miracle? I have prayed that God would grant a miracle and that she wouldn't have to live her life with Down syndrome. That God has not seen fit to work that miracle. But let me say this, and you might be thinking, what does all this have to do with our message today? You see, there are churches that have conditions that make them unhealthy. They're not growing spiritually. They're not growing numerically. You see, Isabella can't change her condition, but churches can change. But many churches refuse to change and work on what needs to be changed so they can grow and be healthy. And so this morning as we look at this text, I believe Paul gives us three requirements for what it takes to be a growing healthy church. And how many believe that God wants His church to be healthy and God wants His church to be growing? And so the first thing I notice as we look at our text this morning is that a healthy church is marked by spiritual unity. A healthy church is marked by spiritual unity. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at this text, how the church needs to be unified. But I believe if the church is going to grow and operate and function and be all that God wants it to be, it has to be a unified church. That we can't be everything God wants us to be and we can't be healthy if we're always fussing and fighting and can't get along. We have to have spiritual unity in our midst. Notice what Paul tells us in verse number 3. He tells us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The King James says, endeavoring to keep the unity through the bond of peace. Of peace. Now notice that he tells us unity is not passive, but active. In other words, unity takes work. Unity takes effort. We have to work on maintaining unity. Work on keeping unity. But also notice that he tells us we don't create unity. We simply work to maintain it. That God unites us. God creates unity among us. God connects us. And we're to strive and make every effort to maintain the unity that God gives us rather than to dismantle it. We're to be a unified body. In verses 4 through 6, Paul gives us seven one statements that emphasize the oneness of the gospel. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven one statements that emphasize the the unity and the oneness of the gospel. Notice he says there's one body. 
There's not two bodies. There's not several bodies. There is one body. Now we live in a world that there are many churches and there are many denominations, but hear me this morning. God's only creating and building one body of people who believe in His Son Jesus. We, we, we might be Pentecostal and there might be people that are Baptist, but God's only building one body. He's only building one church. Not many churches, one church. And then He says there's one Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. The same Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. There's not multiple spirits. There's not many spirits. Listen, there's false spirits. There's wicked spirits. But there's only one Holy Spirit that lives inside of every believer that's been born again. Then it says there's one hope. It's the blessed hope of the believer. You see, there was one. There was a time that we had no hope, but then Christ called us to Himself. He redeemed us. He shed His blood for us. He saved us and justified us. And now we have hope, and we look forward to that great day of redemption. It's the blessed hope of the believer. We have hope, unlike the people of this world. But then He tells us that there's one Lord, only one Lord. All believers that are genuinely saved, all proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. What does that mean? There's only one master. There's only one king. He tells us that there's one faith. This refers to the body of doctrine, the body of truth that we believe, but it also tells us that there's only one way of salvation, and it's by faith in Jesus. That if you want to enter into heaven, if you want to enter into the presence of God, you can only come one way and it's through faith in Jesus. It's by believing on the Son of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He says one baptism. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you can write that reference down. He says, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. You see, we're spiritually united to Christ. We've been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. And then it says there's one God and Father of all. You see, God adopted us into His family. That as believers, we all have the same Father. We're one big happy family. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you believed in Jesus, God is our Father. And when we get to heaven, we're all going to be one big, great, big, happy family. He's the Father of all believers. And so to be a growing, healthy church, we have to have unity. And so when you look at all of these seven one statements that Paul is making here, he's trying to emphasize a very important point. He's wanting us to understand that having a divisive spirit is foolish. He's wanting us to understand that as believers, we're to reflect the very character and nature of God. That because God is one, we should be one. That because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost isn't divided, we shouldn't be divided. Listen, God and Jesus are at war with each other. God the Father and God the Holy Ghost aren't fighting with each other. That means the people of God shouldn't be fighting with each other. They are united and we should be united. If there's oneness in the Godhead, if they are united, then we should be one. Amen? Jesus prayed 
That we would be one as He and the Father would be one. John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, He tells us, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as You were in Me and I am in You. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. Listen, a unified church is a healthy church, but according to what Jesus just said there, it's also a great testimony to a watching world. That when the church is, is united, when the church is together, when the church is in sync, when the church is in harmony, it's a great testimony to a world that's watching. Amen? If we're going to be a growing, healthy church, if we're going to be all God wants us to be, there must be spiritual unity. But secondly, a healthy church is marked by spiritual diversity. There has to be spiritual unity, but it's also marked by spiritual diversity. You see, unity doesn't mean sameness. It doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that we're all robots and we all like the same thing and do the same thing. You see, even though God has called us to unity, we're all unique individually. We're all different. You see, we have different roles. We have different responsibilities. We have different things that God has called us to do that enrich and bless the church. And so in verses 7 through 12, Paul shows us how the church, that even though we're all diverse, he shows us how it functions in a healthy way. He tells us in verses 7 through 10 that we have Different gifts. We have different gifts. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So we have different gifts. According to verse 7, Paul tells us that we have been given a gift. Now he says that to each one of us we've received grace. But the word grace here is the word charis in the Greek. And it's not referring to saving grace. It's referring to serving grace. It's referring to grace that has enabled us to be ministers of the gospel and to serve Jesus Christ and to serve the church. So it's not saving grace, it's serving grace. It's grace to minister and to do the work that God has called us to do. And so here's the thing I want you to get this morning. Every believer is gifted. Every believer is gifted. Jesus Christ has given every one of His children a special gift to serve Him and to serve the body of Christ. No believer has been left out. No believer has been excluded. No believer has been put at the back of the line and say, you've got to wait. If you are a child of God, you have been given a special gift to serve the body of Christ. Now if you're sitting here this morning and say, Preacher, I don't have a gift. I've got two things to say to you. First of all, you may not know what your gift is. 
you're saved, you have a gift, but you may not know what your gift is. But here's the thing. If you say, I don't have a gift, there could be a second thing, and that's, then, that's simply this, and it's kind of blunt. You're not saved. Because every believer has a gift, at least one gift. He's given us a gift, at least one. If you are a child of God, you have at least one gift. Now verse 8, Paul recites Psalm 68 and he relates it to Christ's triumph and authority. And so Paul is saying that Jesus triumphed over death, hell, sin, and the grave and gave gifts to His people to minister to His church. Verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks of Christ's descent and Ascent. Paul sees the incarnation and the ascension of Christ as evidence that Jesus is Savior and King. I want you to understand this morning that Jesus came to this earth and He lived a sinless life and He died and He rose again and He ascended back to heaven and He gave gifts to His people. You see, Jesus went back to heaven victoriously forevermore and He gave gifts to His people that they might serve the body of Christ, that they might serve the church. And we all have a different gift today. But not only do we have different gifts, we have different responsibilities. You see, with the different gifts come different responsibilities. You see, nobody on a team has the same function. Nobody on a team has the same responsibility. Listen, if you look at a baseball team, most hitters, listen, most pitchers aren't known for their hitting. Why? Because that's not what they get paid to do. They get paid to pitch. Not be a good hitter. Am I right, Brother Tommy? They get paid to pitch. They're they're not known for their batting average. (laughs) And those who have the good batting averages on uh, on the baseball team, they're not the pitchers. You look at a football team. The quarterback isn't playing tight in. He gets paid to play quarterback. You look at a basketball team. You don't put all the seven-foot guys out on the basketball court at the same time. Everybody has a different function. Everybody has a different role. Well, guess what? It's the same in the church. Everybody has a different function. Everybody has a different role. Why? Because we all have different gifts. And it takes everybody using their different gift in their different role to make the church be what God wants it to be. And Paul talks about leadership and he talks about members. He tells us that the leaders equip the saints. The leaders equip the saints. Look at verse 11 and verse Number 12. He says, So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip His people for works of service or works of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. So Paul here mentions positions of leadership. He talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And I'm not going to dive into all these and explain what all of these are. But these are Positions of leadership that are mentioned and given to the church. 
These positions of leadership are, are those that are gifted in articulating the gospel and teaching the word and shepherding God's people. Now here's the thing, most of us have been taught or we've grown up hearing that these are callings and these are ministries. Isn't that what we think? That a pastor is somebody who's called to that position. But Paul says, no, these are, these are giftings. It's not a ministry. It's a gifting. And so here's what Paul's wanting us to understand. That gifted leadership is necessary for the health and growth of the church. Leadership is necessary for the church to be what God wants it to be. And he's telling us that God equips people and uses gifted leadership to do what the church needs to be done. He uses leadership to equip the saints. Isn't that what it says? To equip His people for the work of service. So, leadership equips the saints. What do the saints do? The saints do work of ministry. Look at verse 12 there. To equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 12 explodes all of the ideas and false ministry models that envision the church as a pyramid with the past at the point of the pyramid. We've all grown up in the church where the pastor does it all. Haven't we? Because that's what the pastor gets paid to do. Verse 12 refutes all that. Doesn't it? Verse 12 refutes the idea of a one-man show. According to verse 12, pastors, ministers, leaders equip the people to do ministry and do work. I'm just teaching the Bible. Isn't that what it says? You see, the church is not supposed to be the bus where the pastor's driving the bus and everybody else is on board just along for the ride. That's what we've made the church out to be. Pastor, you drive the bus and we'll just jump on the bus and we'll just ride. That's not the model for the church. And that's not how the church grows and that's not how the church is healthy. Because listen, one man can't do it all. Listen, in, in, in church 2530, yes, one man might better keep up everything. But listen, you, you get a church of 100 people, one man can't keep it going. At least not without losing his family. And I've seen many who lost their family trying to juggle all the plates and wear all the hats. And do it all. Listen, I'll give it up before I lose my family. Mark my words, write the date down, put it on your notes that I said it. I'll give it up before I lose my family. I'm a husband and a father first.
He's called me to lead. And He's called me to equip you. To serve. Why? So that the church can be built up. So the church can be strengthened. Edified. Leaders are supposed to prepare, complete, train, and equip God's people for ministry. You see, one of the greatest things that we could ever do around here is to be equipped, raise up leaders, and send them out to serve. You see, here's the thing. In the church, here's what's supposed to happen. The pastor is to work and the people are to work. Everybody has a function. Everybody has a job to do. Can I tell you what a great model for the church ought to be? Every member, a minister. That's what the church ought to look like. Every member, a minister. Every member should be a contributor, not just a consumer. We're living in a day where everybody wants to take and not give. Everybody wants to receive and not contribute. Listen, you need to be putting something back in the church. You need to be depositing something back. Not just taking. Preacher, I'm too old. If you're not dead, God's not done with you. Amen? God has something for you to do, but you've got to take some time from all the other stuff that you're caught up with and give some time to God's kingdom and God's church. So I ask you this, and we'll go to our, our, our third point, but here's, what are you doing with what God's given you? What are you doing with what God's given you? You know, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to use whatever gift God's given us. Write this reference now, 1 Peter 14. That we're to use whatever gift God's given us to serve one another as good stewards of the grace of God. Do you realize that if you aren't using the gift God's given you, you aren't being a good steward of God's grace? I want to be a good steward of God's grace. I want to be a good steward of the talents and gifts that He's given me. So what are you doing with what God's given you? And there's all different kinds of gifts in the Bible. We give just 1 Corinthians 12, the spiritual gifts. Listen, there's, there's generosity, there's encouragement, there's the gift of help. There's, there's all kinds of things that God's gifted us with. But we need spiritual unity. Spiritual diversity, everybody doing their thing that they're supposed to do. But number three, a healthy church is marked by spiritual maturity. The result of the church's unity and diversity is the church's maturity. In other words, when the church is unified and the church is using its gift, everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, the natural result will be spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. 
that when leaders are equipping the people to serve, the result should be maturity. In verses 13 through 16, Paul talks about four traits of a spiritually mature person and how the church can also reach maturity. So write down these four things just in your notes somewhere as I give them to you. First of all, maturity involves Christ-likeness. These are on the screen. But maturity involves Christ-likeness. Look at verse 13. He says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So he says that we've been given leadership to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What? Until we all reach unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and what? Become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of what? The fullness of Christ. He's talking about reaching a place of maturity. A place of perfect manhood. You see, God has gifted the church so that we will grow up and become more and more like Jesus. God has gifted the church so that we will mature and go on to maturity and go on to spiritual perfection so that we'll become more and more like Jesus. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to be conformed to the image of His Son. Can I tell you what the goal is for you and the goal is for me this morning and the goal is for this church? The goal is to be like Jesus. You see, God wants us to demonstrate the qualities of His Son who is the standard of our spiritual maturity. Listen, we're not supposed to compare ourselves with each other or other people out there in the world. We're to compare ourselves with Jesus. And let me say this, when you compare yourself with Jesus, you'll see just how short you come up. Amen. And you'll recognize just how much you need Him. But Jesus is the standard. I'm not the standard. The person you're sitting next to is not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And so maturity involves Christ-likeness, becoming more like Him. But secondly, maturity involves doctrinal stability. Maturity involves doctrinal stability. Look at verse 14. Then we will be no longer infants. Now notice that, verse 13. He talked about being mature, Attaining to the full measure of the stature of Christ, but now he says we'll no longer be infants. So you got a perfect man, a full grown man, contrasted with being infants. Then we'll be no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We're to no longer be infants tossed to and fro, thrown about by every wind of doctrine. If you've had children, and most all of us have had children, you know that children can be, let's just say gullible, naive, easily influenced, 
easily led astray. At, at times, children can be led to believe anything. And so Paul says here that as we mature, that we're not supposed to be like little children who are led astray. And we're not supposed to give in to the trickery and deceit of false teachers and false doctrine. That we're supposed to grow up so that we, we, we know when people are trying to pull the wool over our eyes. That we're supposed to grow up so that we, we, we know when the wolves show up. Even if they disguise themselves in sheep's clothing, we, we know that they are wolves. Maturity involves doctrinal stability. We're to grow up so that we know right from wrong. We're to grow up so that we know the truth from lies. Amen? But then he tells us a third thing, that maturity involves truth joined with love. Maturity involves truth joined with love. We see this in verse number 15. He says, instead speaking the truth in love, we will, what, grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. Notice that, speaking the truth in love. God expects us to be truthful. But He also expects us to do it in such a way that it's loving. Do you understand? We're to have a high regard for the truth and hold to the truth. But we're to speak the truth in a loving manner. Now here's the thing. Some of us are good at speaking the truth. But we're not so good at being loving. We're good at being truthful. Speaking the truth. Telling people what they're supposed to know. What they're supposed to hear. But not so good at being loving when we do it. Hear what I'm about to say. I'm going to be very blunt to the point right here. God has not called you and me to be jerks for Jesus. We're not to be jerks for Jesus. And can I tell you, that's what some people think we are. Preacher, I'm being truthful with them. I don't care if you're not being loving with them. Some people think you're just being a jerk. And you need to cut it out. Because you're not going to win anybody that way. John Stott, he said this. He said, truth becomes hard if not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together. I pray that the people around us in our community would say this about our church. I pray they would say they teach the Bible faithfully, but I also pray that they would say they love each other like family and their neighbors like themselves. 
I want us to be known as a church that preaches the Bible faithfully, but I also want people to say they love each other like family and their neighbors. And hear me, even if people don't agree with our doctrine, I pray that people can say they love each other there. Amen? I want us to be a place of love. But let me give you this fourth thing. Maturity involves contribution. Maturity involves contribution. We see this in verse number 16. He says, From Him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Notice this. Grows and builds itself up in love. There's that word love again. As each part does its work. Christ holds the body together. Listen, we aren't holding the body together. Christ holds the body together. But we grow in love. We grow and we're what He wants us to be as each part does its work. Listen, you, you are a member of the body. You are a body part. You are important. You are needed. I don't say that enough. We don't hear those words enough, do we? But you are important. You are special. You are needed. But here's the thing. You are to contribute. And maturity, growing in Christ, growing in our faith, means you learn to contribute. Because it's only when we contribute that we are built up. And we grow spiritually, we grow numerically, and we become all that God wants us to be. So in closing, What we learn from this past? We learn that everybody has a gift. We learn that everybody is needed. We learn that everybody has a role to play. We learn that everybody is supposed to be doing their job for the church to operate and function and work. And you might be here today and at this moment you, you don't know why you're here, but I can promise you God has you here for a reason. God has you here for a purpose. Maybe you need to spend some time praying about it, diving into His Word, seeking to find out what it is that God has gifted you to do. But listen, God has gifted you and you need to find out what it is because we can't afford for you to sit out and do nothing. We will only be healthy. And we will only grow as each part does what it's been gifted and called to do. As the pastor, as, as the leader, I want to do my best to equip you and train you to serve. And here's one thing that crossed my mind this week. I don't have to open service. And I don't have to be the one who calls up the ushers to take up the offering. 
I don't have to do that. Someone else can do that. Other people can pray. And so I'll just say this. If you would say, Preacher, I'll open up service and I'll take up offering. You come see me. And I'll let you do it. And if there's several who want to do it, we'll put you on a schedule and rotate. Because I don't have to be the one that does it. If you are able to sing, you got special songs you want to sing, you let me know and we'll come up with a schedule. And we'll let you sing. We got to only sing two worship songs each week and do a special song. We'll cut out a song. I'll listen. I want everybody to do what you've been gifted to do. Because when we all do what we're supposed to do, I believe God will bless and God will move. But here's what I'll say this. So many times we don't serve because we say, I don't know specifically what it is I'm supposed to do. Well, here's the thing. If you don't know what it is specifically you're supposed to do, just start serving. Don't use not knowing what specifically you're supposed to do as an excuse to do nothing. Amen? Just start serving. And you might find out that while serving, you discover what it is you're supposed to do. In fact, let me say this. According to the text, if you go back and look at it, study it around verse 11, verse 12, and 13 again, while you serve, you actually grow. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, what? For the building up of body. That while you learn to serve, you build up the body. You grow and you mature. Stand with me.